Good evening, everyone. So I was standing down there this when we were, Jared had that moment of prayer tonight, and uh, we were down there praying at the altar uh, in the song, Surrender. So when I was up there tonight thinking, that was just running through my mind, just thinking, do we have the guts, do we really have the guts to say to God, no matter what, use me? I mean, think about that. That's something big, isn't it? No matter what. Because I do it sometimes, and I'll tell you, my mind, I'm human. My mind goes straight to, okay, God, use me. Oh, but please don't maybe take one of my children. Don't let me have to go through some bout with cancer. You know, don't let me have to suffer some unexpected tragedy. But God, use me. I want you to use me. No matter what, I want you to use me. But can you do it in a way that maybe fits into what I want to do? Maybe the ministry that I want, maybe the job that I want. Boy, it's a lot to say, God, use me. In whatever way you see fit, that's the ultimate point of surrender, isn't it? And you know, what's great about these Beatitudes that we've been studying is really, if you think about it, I mean, you know, really, really think about what we're talking about here. This is the character of Christ. This is the character of Christ. It's the ultimate in surrender, right? Because what we're talking about, the reason every week is so hard and it almost feels, you know, it's convicting, right? When you think about these Beatitudes because it's molding us into the character of Christ. The ultimate point of surrender. Because each and every one of these Beatitudes, we're having to give up something. We're having to give up something. We're having to surrender. Every week, it's something different, isn't it? I can tell you, it's been kicking my butt as I've been going through studying it. It's hard. Convicting. Really convicts me down to my core. So we're going to continue tonight. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Matthew 5, verse 7. Talking about mercy tonight. Being merciful. So Matthew 5, 7 said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. So somebody tell me, somebody give me a simple definition of mercy. You know, most people would put it and couch it in terms of grace, right? You know, you talk about grace is getting something you don't deserve, and mercy is getting something, or not getting something that you do deserve, right? We think of it in terms of like a relief of a punishment, if you will, that you deserve. Uh, in the Bible, in the Old Testament in particular, there really wasn't much of a distinction between grace and mercy. They were used almost interchangeably. In the New Testament, we start seeing a little bit of a difference. Uh, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says that we are to draw with, near with confidence to the throne of grace, the throne of God, to receive mercy, to receive mercy and find grace. Uh, if you think about it, really grace is, is undeserved love. That's the best way to think about grace. It's undeserved love, a gift. The best way to think about mercy, okay, is it's grace in action. Mercy is extending relief. It's compassion, okay? It's, it's active. Mercy is active. Uh, Webster's gives a definition of mercy. It says, mercy is compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone who is within one's power to punish or harm. Notice that it doesn't really talk much in that definition, does it, about deserving 
We talk of it and think of it in terms of deserving, but it says that it's compassion or forgiveness shown towards someone whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Okay, so one great way to, to look at this and think of this is the childhood game. Grace is going to help me here. The childhood game that we all played that was called what? Mercy. Everybody play Mercy when they were a kid? Am I the only one? Somebody else played Mercy in this room, right? Come on. So, and, and, and when I asked Grace about this, she knew what it was. So I know that kids are still doing it today. So the idea of playing the game of Mercy, right, was to do this. And then both of you try. She said that I have to let her win, by the way. But at some point in time, you do that. And then, of course, they say Mercy, right? And then you have, let them go. Thank you, Grace. Okay, Grace in action, right? Mercy, there you go. Um, but was Grace deserving of that? Not really, right? I mean, she didn't do anything to deserve, you know, me twisting her hand sideways and trying to hurt her. No, not at all. But was it, in, was it within my control to relieve that harm? Absolutely it was. And, and, and notice, too, it really isn't even directly personal. You know, if, if her and William, she'd probably win, honestly, if it were William. But if my son and Grace, if they were playing this and William happened to be winning, okay, I could tell William, stop doing that. Right? It would be within my power and within my control to show compassion and extend relief to grace, even if it wasn't and didn't have anything to do with me. And I truly believe, if you look at the world as a whole, we've got a bunch of really kind of nuts out there, and they, they seem to be appearing more and more these days. But I think generally as a whole, okay, the world is merciful, Especially when you're talking about someone like Grace, right? Somebody that's a sweet little girl that's a very sympathetic, okay, figure, all right? And also, when it's easy, right? Didn't take much for me to grant mercy to Grace there. I just had to stop twisting her arms. Really didn't require much of me. Really wasn't that hard for me. Didn't, didn't require a sacrifice. And the person I was doing it for... It's a sweet little girl that I love dearly. So it was very easy for me to do that. And I think most people will extend mercy, okay, in those types of situations. But the mercy that we're talking about here in Matthew 5, 7, to have a merciful heart is something much more. Okay, it's not what I just described. It's not an easy mercy. It's not for a sympathetic figure, okay, this is something that is much more difficult, much more radical. And here's why I say that. First is because if you look at the, yeah, the word, the, the, the root of the word, what's behind it, the word merciful, it's a word called chesed. All right? And chesed is an Aramaic word. And if Jesus, when he was speaking in that day, would have probably been speaking in Aramaic or in Hebrew. And in both Hebrew and Aramaic, this word chesed would be the word for merciful. All right, and here is what one commentary says about this word chesed. It says, this word, this merciful, this chesed does not mean to only feel sorry for someone. doesn't mean just to have compassion or extend compassion for someone. It means the ability to get inside, right inside the other person's skin, to see things as they see things, to feel what they feel. Okay, to me, this is, if I had to describe it, is the, the old saying is to walk in another person's shoes. Okay, to put yourself in their place. Okay, to get down and dirty in their life. Okay, it's hard. This is a picture of something that's much more than just letting go of the hands. This is to get into somebody's life, to get your hands dirty. Okay, 
Another reason that I know this is something more than what just the general uh, person would have and show in terms of mercy is in the blessing. What's the blessing that we see here? It says, for they shall receive mercy, right? So there's some people that have tried to make the argument that this is quid pro quo, which is Latin for this, for that. Okay, meaning that the reason, you know, you get mercy, you're merciful, is because, you know, you, you, you're not going to have a merciful heart unless you're mer- you give mercy to others. It's kind of, I got to do something so that I have a merciful heart, right? It's, it, it only comes because I show mercy to others. That's the only reason I get mercy, Okay, they, one works off the other. But we know that's not the right meaning behind this, right? And we know that because Scripture is very clear that it has nothing to do with us, right? It isn't because we're merciful that we get mercy, all right? It isn't a result of our works and our effort. Always a good thing to remember when you're interpreting difficult Scripture is to look at the whole of Scripture, uh, and see it, how it explains it in the whole of Scripture. So that's really not it. Actually, what's a better description of this blessing is, see if I can say it, imago inspecaglo, imago inspecaglo, which means in Latin, a reflection in a mirror. Okay, so the real reason that we're merciful is it's this reflection. It's because mercy has been shown to us from God. So our merciful heart, remember these are characteristics of the Christian, our merciful heart is a reflection, if you will, of the mercy that we've received. It's a mirror. We're a mirror of Jesus and the mercy that God showed us. Now, when you look and think about the mercy that God has showed to us, man, isn't that by definition getting down and dirty? I mean... You know, God loved us so much that he took the form of man, came down, walked in our shoes, was tempted the way we're tempted, was murdered on a cross, okay, so that we could be saved. Talking about hard mercy, I mean, Jesus could have said, listen, (laughs) these people, they're stubborn, they're disobedient, there's no chance I'm going down there to help them. It's too hard. I've got it made right here in heaven. I see no reason to do this. It's hard and they are for sure not sympathetic. All they do is disobey, 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 disobey. But that's not what he did, is it? He, just tried, he decided he was going to sacrifice himself, okay, to show us mercy. So that's the type of mercy that we're talking about here in Matthew 5, 7. To have a merciful heart, a merciful character, if you will, means that you are a person that shows this type of mercy, okay? That shows this mercy when it's really hard, okay? And when the person's not very sympathetic and it requires a lot of you, there's a big sacrifice, all right? And I want to give you a couple of examples, illustrations that maybe will help bring this point home. Uh, One uh, from New York legend and the other from the Bible. So have you ever heard um, of LaGuardia Airport? Anybody probably been through, if you've been through there, you know LaGuardia Airport. It's one of the more terrifying airports in the world. I hate going through there. I used to fly in and out there all the time, and I now avoid it. After I found out that they won't let Air Force One land in LaGuardia, I decided that I'm not landing there either. I've been on planes so many times where I'm looking out my window 
at the runway. <laughs> and they're coming in sideways because they have very few runways at this airport. And you had to, the wind was blowing so hard that you're going sideways that at the last minute you're coming in to land. So that's LaGuardia. Well, LaGuardia was named after a mayor, uh, Fiorelli LaGuardia. And he was the mayor of New York in the 30s and in the 40s. And he was a kind, uh, great man. Uh, they, they say that uh, he would take entire orphanages to baseball games. Uh, when they had a uh, newspaper strike, it is said that he would get on the radio and read the newspaper so that people would get to know what's going on. He's a great man, and uh, he was a beloved mayor. Uh, one night, uh, the legend has it that he was uh, substituting as a judge in one of the toughest, roughest places in New York, and the first person to come before him that night at the bench was a grandmother. There was this older grandmother who had stolen uh, a loaf of bread from a local shop owner. And the local shop owner was there and he was talking to him and saying, hey, this is a bad person and you know, they are always stealing from me in this neighborhood. You need to make an example of this person. You have to punish this person. So the judge, LaGuardia, hears all of this and then the lady gets to speak and she has tears running down her eyes and her her lip is quivering, and she says, yes, Your Honor, I did steal that loaf of bread, but the reason I did is because me and my daughter and my grandchildren are starving to death. Um, my son-in-law left us, and we have no way to make any money, and we have no way to buy food, and it just impacted him. Uh, he felt instant compassion uh, for this lady. So he says, listen, um, you know, you broke the law. I have to punish you, and the punishment for this is either $10 or 10 days in jail. And he said, so I'm going to sentence you to $10. And she starts crying and weeping. He says, but, reaching into his pocket, he takes out a $10 bill, and he says, I'm going to pay the fine for you. And then, just to make it even better, he offers up some grace, and he makes everybody in the courtroom give her 50 cents. And he said it was because um, they all should be, feel terrible about the fact that somebody that lives amongst them is so hungry that they would have to steal. So I think she got like another $12 uh, above being able to pay the fine. A great act of mercy, wouldn't you, wouldn't you say? A great act of compassion and kindness. All right, so now let's look at something that maybe is you know, a little bit different than that. And this is going to be the story of Lot. So let's turn in our Bible to Genesis chapter 19. Genesis 19, and we're going to talk about Lot. Remember, Lot is the nephew of Abraham. And let me give you a little of the background and setup for this that I'll, I'll put it in a modern spin for us, okay? So Abraham, being called by God to start a family business, this family business was going to focus on cattle, He's going to focus on land, okay? So he was going to run this. He was going to be the patriarch of the family business. And Abraham decides in his own grace that he's going to include Lot, his nephew. There's nothing in the Bible that says that God told him to include Lot uh, purely as a gift. Abraham includes Lot, says, hey, I'm going to bring you into the family business with me. All right, I'm going to get you out of this, this pagan world that, that we're both living in. You're going to get to be a part of now our family and God's family. And you're going to be a part of this family business. So Lot comes along. They go and time goes by and they're very, very successful. This businessman, it has taken off and it is doing really, really, really well. And they become gigantically rich. 
even Lot, I mean, he's done so well. He gave him a piece of the company, and man, it's really taken off in value. But as it happens a lot of times, right, uh, somebody that maybe didn't have to work for it the same way uh, decides that maybe he's not appreciated enough. You know, I'm just not getting my, my fair share of this, Abraham. Um, not working out, us working together. So I'm going to get out of here. Little kind of spoilt, rotten kind of guy that just decided, hey, there's, I'm going to do it better on my own. So, of course, Abraham again says, that's, you know, that's fine. That's fine. We're, we're family. I want to help you. Okay, so Lot, you just decide what part of the business you want. You get the best of everything. You get to pick of the land and whatever you need. You just decide. So what does Lot do? He picks the best. At least he picks the best in terms of uh, geography, Okay, he picks the best in terms of the best land. It's, it's kind of right on the water of the Jordan. You know, it kind of sounds a little like California. I'm not talking about California, but it seems really good. Okay, but there's also a lot of sin. All right, this is Sodom and Gomorrah that he chose, right? And it's full of sin. I'm not making any judgments on California, but all right, there's lots of sin there. The Bible says it's full of sin. So, but this is where he goes. He goes to California. He goes, he's in L.A., in the nice part of L.A. over there, all right? He goes there, and life is still going good for life uh, until there's a revolution, called the slaughter of the kings. We talked about it in Hebrews. And all of a sudden, there's massive war, and Lot and his family have been captured. So what happens? Abraham, of course, again, here we go. Uh, I've been helping him his whole life, and now he's got himself in a mess. So what do I got to do? I got to go help him again. So Abraham goes, helps him, frees him. You know, what does Lot do? He doesn't say, oh, gosh, thank you so much. Let me come back and help you. I was so wrong for, for leaving. No, what does he do? He stays there. Thank you very much. Appreciate you helping me again, getting me out of all this trouble. I've made a mess out of my business and my life and my family, but thank you very much, and I'm going to keep trying again, okay? And that's kind of what brings us to where we're at now. Right before this chapter 19 is the, is the famous uh, verse that you've probably, or chapter and discussion that you've heard about that was between God and Abraham, where God had come to Abraham and spoke to him and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because it's just so evil. There's so much sin and, and, and corruption. I'm going to just wipe it out. What does Abraham say? Uh, please don't do that. He doesn't mention Lot, by the way, but he says, please don't. He said, God, what, what if there were just 50 righteous people there? Would you spare the whole city? And God says, okay, all right, I would do that if there's 50. And he says, what about 40? Okay, what about 30? What about 20? All the way down to 10, right? And God says, okay, if there's 10 people, then I will spare this city. So this is where now they've had this discussion. And, and if you look in verse 1 of chapter 19... Now you're seeing that God is, is sending two angels over to Sodom. Now, these angels you could call ministers of mercy. And some people have referred to angels as ministers of mercy. Okay, and to put yourself back into this kind of modern story, right? This is, this is you and I. These angels are you and I. Okay, they're God calling us as these angels to go and help someone. To rescue someone. Okay, it could be uh, from another place. It could just be from another predicament. 
I don't know what it is, but this is, you can think of this two angels as being you and me. And God's calling us now to go help someone. All right? I doubt very seriously these angels were that fired up about going. I mean, this is not a great mission. You're going into this corrupt, dangerous city, Sodom and Gomorrah, where you're not even sure there's anybody that's righteous. And, and for what? Just, you know, so you can go in there and look around and find no one, and then God's going to destroy it. Okay? They're winning there. God sent them in there, all right, to see if he could find these 10 people. If there was a reason not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. So the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate, sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked them unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, they surrounded the house and they called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door after him. So he's standing outside talking to all the men of the city. And he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. So now if you didn't dislike this person Lot before based on just what he had done, you got to hate him now, right? I mean, this guy is about as low as you can possibly get. I mean, he just met these two, two angels, and yet he's willing just to give his daughters over to the whole town. Just do whatever you want to them. It doesn't matter. You can just see kind of these two angels, which are, we'll see are men. You can just see them sitting there thinking, what in the world is going on? Why is this person doing this? It says, only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has come, become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house. The angels, the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they were, wore themselves out groping to the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and had said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his son-in-laws to be jesting. I mean, can't you just see it? He has zero credibility, right? I mean, I'm sure these, these, these sons-in-law are just thinking, oh gosh, this guy is crazy. I mean, he's not a good leader. He keeps making these stupid decisions. He gets us in trouble over and over again. So you get this sense that they don't even believe him. So as morning dawned, the angels heard Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. 
Again, I mean, the city is about to be destroyed. They're as urgently as they can trying to tell him, we've got to get out of here, and he's having a cup of coffee. I mean, he's sitting over there at the table just, oh, you know what? I don't understand. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought him, them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor. King James Version there would say found grace in your sight. And you have shown me great kindness or mercy in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the, to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, the city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. So here he is again. They're saying, listen, come out with us. Go over here to this city, this hilltop. And what is Lot saying? No, no, I appreciate all you're doing for me. I appreciate your grace and your favor, your kindness and your mercy. But I want to go over there. I want to stay in this place that's a little bit closer to home. All right. I don't want to really get out of my comfort zone and out of, I don't want to get too far away. Okay, so they said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you uh, arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor, which means little. And if you read down further, you would see that this place Zor, in just, I think, 10 or so verses from now, he has to flee for his life. Okay, so again, he's making bad decisions, making bad choices. I know if anybody's ever really got their hands dirty in ministry and serving and, and helping, uh, you can relate to this story, right? I mean, I know I can. <laughs> uh, I've, I've done a lot of inner city ministry, all right? And I've been down there and, and had, had this play out exactly like this in, in, in that, that area, in, in that serving, okay? I've, I've seen the bad decisions, okay? You're down there with them and you know, here Lot's giving away his daughters, and it's not that, but it's all kinds of bad decisions, right? And they're frustrating you, and you're just like, come on, get it together, all right? Stop doing stupid things, all right? You see it all the time, and then you, and then, and then you can't get them to have any urgency, right? You're trying to help them, but you're saying, listen, you got to do this, all right, you need, you, need to, you need to meet with me every week and you need to show up and you need to be there, all right? And you need to be committed to this and you gotta, you gotta really try, all right? And they're just lingering. You can't get them to focus, can't get them to be all in, you can't get them to try, right? You've seen this if you've been in ministry, if you've tried to help and serve others, you've seen this. And then how many times you're like, all right, I've got, here's what we're gonna do. We've got a plan, we're gonna execute the plan. You're going to do this. You're going to go here. You're going to move out of this. You're going to get away from these friends. You're going to get out of this environment. You're going to do all this. And where they go, uh, what if I just stop talking to that person? But these are my good friends. I can't, I can't let these people go, right? I can't go all the way out to the mountain. I've got to stay close by. Just so, I, so, I mean, you've seen this play out, right? If you've tried to help people before, this lot person, right? It, it could be anybody in your life that you've tried to help all right, but look what happens in that verse 16 after he's lingering. It says, so the man seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. Gosh, isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, you're talking about down and dirty, walking in another's shoes. They're grabbing them by the hand. 
leading them. I know you've made bad choices. I know, you know, you're not thinking straight. Okay, you're not listening. Maybe you're not trying as much as I'd like, but you know what? I've got you by the hand. We're going to do this together. We're going to walk together. Can you see the difference in these two scenarios? The judge and what's happening here in Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, think about it. If, if you go back to the first story of, uh, of Judge LaGuardia, do you think you would have had the same outcome if this grandmother would have been mean? She'd have been cussing at the judge and throwing stuff at him and saying all kinds of bad things. And I didn't do it. I didn't take it. That guy's a liar. He's a bad guy. You're a bad guy. You got it all out for me. I mean, you think it would have ended the same way? She'd probably be in jail for those 10 days is my guess, right? It's hard, you know. It's not very sympathetic. I don't really like this lady. But she's an old grandma, and she's just in there crying, and he, you know, feels sorry, right? What if, what if it wouldn't have been $10, it would have been a million dollars? And it would have been 10 years. I mean, do you think it would have turned out the same? Do you think that LaGuardia would have reached in and pulled out a million dollars? Probably not, Right? I mean, because when it's hard, when mercy's hard, all right, when it's hard, we can find lots of excuses. I'm too busy. Problems are too much to overcome. I'm kind of afraid to get involved. I don't really have the time to do this. It's a lot different than when I was playing the game of mercy with grace, where all I got to do is let go to be merciful. You know, but when it costs you a lot, and maybe when that person's not very sympathetic, it's a lot harder, isn't it? It's a lot harder to be merciful when you're talking about someone that isn't someone that you want to be merciful to. And when it takes a lot of your time and a lot of your effort. But Matthew 5, 7, mercy, having a merciful heart like Jesus, being a reflection of Jesus, that's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do. We're called to have a merciful heart and to extend mercy when it's hard. When it's hard. You know, so a good question that we should ask ourselves is when other people look at us, do they see that type of a person? Do they see somebody that has this type of a merciful heart? I mean, you know, ask yourself, when I see somebody that's in trouble, when I see somebody that's hurting, Okay, do, do I look at it with love and compassion and forgiveness? Or do I look at it and say, you know what? They made their own bed. They can lie in it. Now, they deserve what they're getting. They're making a bunch of stupid choices, and they just deserve it. How do you look at things? Let me ask you maybe a less personal question that you could give me some feedback on. How do you think the world views Christians today? Do you think they view Christians in accordance with this merciful Matthew 5, 7, merciful heart? What do you think? They think we're harsh. Why do you think that is? Why do you think they, they see us as harsh and not merciful today? Crusades. Crusades? Not just that reason, but that we're warring. Warring, yeah. Us against them kind of mentality? Maybe. We're not accepting of the 
Not accepting, yeah? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, I completely agree with that. Do you think it um do you think it has anything to do with just kind of the the, the difficulty of balancing what I would call justice or truth and mercy. I mean, because it seems like today, more than ever, it seems like Christians are having a really hard time with this. And maybe it's just because the world has gotten so out of hand, you know, and we feel like we're being pushed back and under attack. But it seems like today, to me, more than I could ever remember, it seems like we're having a hard time with this. How do we balance this truth and mercy? I mean, we don't want to give ground, right? I mean, we don't want to give in to the, to the Word of God, and we shouldn't, right? We want to live by the truth of Scripture. We are to be salt and light. You know, but we're having a hard time with this, aren't we? Having a hard time finding this balance. You know, and Stephen, when he was uh, preaching, Stephen Smith, when he was preaching last week, he said, he was talking about, he said, wouldn't it be great if, uh, if in the front there was like, you know, a list of how to be a better husband, you know, how to be a better father. You know, we need one for this, don't we? That, that kind of gives us more detail specifically about how to do this balance. I mean, if anybody has children, you know how difficult this is, right? <laughs> Disciplining your child, how do you balance mercy and justice. We tend to think that, that mercy begins where justice ends or, or vice versa, okay? But they really don't. They work together. Mercy and justice are complementary to one another, okay? They, they, they work together. Uh, you know, an example with kids would be um, there's nothing just about allowing your child to drown in a pool because they snuck in a gate and disobeyed you and accidentally fell in and couldn't swim. There's nothing just about that. There's also nothing, nothing merciful about uh, allowing them to continue to do that, all right, and to continue to make those bad decisions. You know, the same could be said about somebody that, that, that was hungry, right? I mean, there's nothing that's just about letting someone that's hungry die of hunger, but there's also nothing merciful about you know, allowing them to continue to make bad choices that puts them in a position where they're hungry. So there's, a, there's this you know, idea that we have to somehow balance these together. You know, I don't know that I have the exact perfect answer, but the Bible does give us some guidance on this. If you turn over to, to the book of Micah, turn to Micah chapter 7. We're going to look at 7 and 6 really briefly here. So at the time of Micah, Micah was a prophet. And at the time, Judea and Israel uh, were gigantically corrupt, okay? Nobody was chasing after God, okay? And Micah is this prophet that is prophesying basically the judgment that is to come, okay? If you really read these chapters, it starts looking a lot like today, except really worse, Okay, and he's talking about and prophesying about and, and, and talking about how bad it is, but he's also talking about there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be a remnant, okay, that's going to be forgiven, all right, and they're going to execute God's plan through the Messiah, all right. But it's bad times, and if you look, it'll give you a glimpse of it there in verse 2 of chapter 7, 
Okay, it tells you how bad it is. It says, the godly is perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. Nobody. You can't find one good person. I don't even think we're that bad today, right? Can't find one person. They all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. I think he was probably referring to the internet. <laughs> each hunts the other with a net. All right, this is bad times. But look what he speaks to that remnant in chapter 6, verse 8. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness. A better translation would be in the King James Version. That would say mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. Notice these are connected. These are ands, right? These aren't ors. These are ands. These are all working together. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So to me, the answer to how do we do this today, how do we become better at balancing this justice and mercy, because we need to get good at this, don't we? Does our world need this today? Do we need Christians to know how to balance justice and mercy? You bet you we do. Okay? And I think the answer, though, is here. Because the last part says to walk humbly with your God. Okay? Proverbs 11.2 tells us that, that the humble, with the humble comes wisdom. That's our answer, isn't it? How do we do this balance? We need wisdom from God. That's the only way. That's the only way these three work in concert together. Justice and mercy. It's if we're walking humbly. Walking humbly. We've talked about this. This is the lead up to this, right? Think of it as meekness. We talked about the stallion, right? The strong stallion. Okay, we have to be walking in humility to others. Drawing upon the wisdom of God. That's the only way. And where do we get wisdom from? We get wisdom from our prayer, right? Asking. The Bible says if you want wisdom, what? Ask. Ask. How else do you get it? It's right here, isn't it? There's a whole book of wisdom. Reading the Word, right? This whole thing. And can we get other hints about how to do this, how to make this balance from the Word? Of course we can. What's the greatest commandment? Did, when, when Jesus said, here's the greatest commandment, did He say it is to uh, administer justice? Was that it? Was that the great one? No, it wasn't, right? What did he say? And love a guy with all your heart and love others as you love yourself. A lot of people would insert in there for love, mercy. Have mercy on others as you have mercy on yourself. So it's, to me, that's a pretty good indication of how we are to achieve this balance. Sure, okay, Justice and mercy work together. But I got a feeling that too many times we're tilted too far toward justice and not enough tilted toward mercy. Because Jesus is telling us, above all, you're to love one another. You're to love one another. Just think about, man, what we could do, okay, if we're showing this kind of mercy to people around us. 
if we're walking out into the world, into our schools and into our jobs and amongst our families and showing them this Matthew 5, 7 mercy. I mean, it's got the power to change the world, right? It's got the power to change the world. I had a quote that I found. I'm going to end with this from D.A. Carson. He's a great theologian, great teacher, great author, great preacher. He said this about this topic. He said, I am convinced and I am persuaded that should the Spirit of God usher in another period of refreshing revival in the Western world, one of the earliest signs of it will be the admission of spiritual bankruptcy, which finds its satisfaction in God and His righteousness and goes on to be richly merciful toward others. If you're going to start a change, a revival, if you're going to, if you're going to go make a difference in this world as a Christian, it's going to be about being merciful to others. It's the power to change the world, to change our modern Judea and Israel, what it looks like there in Micah. We have the power to do that. It's right here. God's given it to you. He's given it to you. If you're a Christian, he's given you this merciful heart. All right? It's just how we use it. Amen? All right, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this time where we get to come together, Lord, and Lord, open your word and just gain your wisdom, God. I pray, Lord, that, that Lord, you would give us a, a merciful heart like Jesus, that, Lord, we would extend mercy in the same way it was extended to us, that we would have this, this radical Jesus-like mercy that just changes the world. God, I pray, Lord, that all of us would be fully surrendered to your will. God, I pray that you would just use us in a way, Lord, that we could just never, ever imagine. God, I just pray that your Holy Spirit, God, would just empower us, change us. God, we don't want to be just that person sitting in this classroom or sitting in that church. We want to be a part of telling people about Jesus, of extending your mercy. We want to be your hands and your feet. We want to go out for you and make a difference in this broken world. God, please give us the strength to do that. Humble our hearts, Lord. God, just let us depend on you and be available, be willing to do whatever it takes. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.